I want to stir up in us as a church today a fresh hunger and expectation for the presence of God. That's what I'm driving to. And my plan is to not speak for as long so that we can have as long as possible um, just asking the Holy Spirit to do what he wants to do, to speak to us, to fill us, to baptize us, uh, and fill us with power. That's what I want. That's what I'm really gunning for this morning. I was reminded of a story of uh, John Wimber, who was a, a guy involved in uh, the, starting the vineyard movement of churches, which is similar to us. There's a story of him going into a, a church, preaching one morning with a cake, put the cake at the front, and said, um, said we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come today and fill us. And if he doesn't, we're just going to have cake. So it's a win-win. You can have cake or you get filled with the Spirit. And they just prayed and asked the Holy Spirit to come. I haven't got any cake, um, but I have got a bucket of water and or two buckets and some things, which I'll get to in a bit. Um, but that's what we're gunning for and going for this morning. Um, the reason I was thinking about this is, was several things, really. This past week on Tuesday, um, Riley, my five-year-old, burst into our room at 6 a.m. this morning, which isn't an unusual time. But what was unusual was that he didn't say hello or good morning or anything like that. I just basically woke up with this five-year-old's face like that, which is just quite startling. Like, oh. <laughs> um, and, he, and he was very excited. He said, can I go downstairs, Daddy? Can I go downstairs? That's all he wanted to know. No, hello, good morning. Can I make you a cup of tea, Dad? No, he's never done that. Can I go downstairs? Um, on Tuesday. Any ideas why he would have said that? Father Christmas. Father Christmas. No, John. That's the 25th of December. Okay, <laughs> Advent calendar. Thank you. The 1st of December on Tuesday. Basically, can I go downstairs because there's chocolate for me. And if I go down there, I'll get chocolate. He was very excited. And there's an expectation and an excitement in him about Advent because it means chocolate. That's what Advent's all about, isn't it? But it got me thinking that actually the concept of Advent is at the heart of the Bible's story. This idea of waiting for the promised one of God or the presence of God is at the, right at the heart of the Bible's story. So the, the Bible begins in a garden when God creates the first man and first woman. His presence is there with them. As we said earlier, God created us to be friends with him. His presence was there with his people, walked with them in the cool of the day. He created us to know him, to be friends with him, to have his presence. Mankind rebelled against God as the story goes. But God along the way has done what he could and done what he can to, um, to dwell and to live among his people again. In the Old Testament story, it went from the garden and then God took a particular people and said, I'm going to live among you. And when he rescued them from Egypt, he got them to build a tent in the desert called the Tabernacle. And he said, my presence is going to live there. So they all basically created their whole camp structure to focus on this tent where God supposedly lived and dwelt among them. They were a people of the presence of God. And when the presence of God moved, they all followed it and went with it because they were designed and created to be near God. That's what they wanted. Uh, later on in the story, when the people get established as a country and a nation of their own, they have kings. And King Solomon builds this magnificent temple for God. And the temple works in that it has an outer place, an inner place, has a holy place. And then there's this curtain, and behind the curtain is the most holy place. The place that not just anybody was allowed to go, only priests were allowed to go. In fact, only the, ho the high priest was allowed to go. And he was only allowed to go there once a year. Because in this, the most holy place... It was believed that the presence of God dwelt most thickly. In the, sense, in the same sense that the sun is both visible everywhere, but also specifically sourced in that ball of fire, so it is with the presence of God. That God is everywhere, and yet also specifically 
sourced. And in that moment in history, he was in uh, the temple, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place, living among his people. The story goes on and Jesus arrives, the long-awaited one, the one that we are um, marking our days by having chocolate in readiness for, um, that Jesus came. And in the book of John, in the opening chapter, it says that the word became flesh and lived among us. Or the word that's used there, it reminds us, it reminded its original hearers of the tab- tabernacle, the tent where God dwelt. That John wrote to them and said, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And then at Jesus' death, this remarkable thing happened. With the, uh, the moment that he died, the curtain in the temple that marked the distance between the holy place and the most holy place, it was torn in two. And God's presence broke out and is now everywhere in that sense. Advent is over. It ended when Jesus came. But expectation isn't. That's what I'm wanting to drive at. Advent is over, but expectancy in the church and among God's people shouldn't be. In the book of Acts, Jesus, before he left his disciples, he gave them some commands. And this is one of the things he said to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And there was this amazing moment in the history of the church where the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people who were waiting with expectancy. And the church began. It was the birthday of the church. That was one of the things I remember from my RE class, because my RE teacher gave us a birth cake, birthday cake and said, Pentecost, this moment is the birthday of the church. It was when the Holy Spirit came and was poured out in power on God's people. And the history of Christianity has really been the history of what happened next. I love, uh, I love my church history. I'm a, a church history geek. In fact, I give myself treats as breaks during a day or in an evening. If Amy's watching something that I don't think is very good, I give myself a treat and I'll hide away. And I've got this beautiful new church history book that's got lots of pictures in it, which just appeals to me. There's lots of pictures and a few words about the history of the church. And one of the things that the, early, that the historians often comment on in the, the growth of the church, they're all scratching their heads trying to work out what is it that caused this ragtag movement of a few men and women in Jerusalem in 33 AD? What is it that caused that to blossom into this now, you know, this faith that covers all the planet and has billions of people, 60% of people on the planet identify as Christians? How did it do that? In the first 300 years, they always talk about these different factors. Oh, they, they really loved the poor and they cared for the poor. Or they, they were um, kind of real, they, they were into women's rights. They were the first feminists. They valued men and women equally. Or they, they, they cared about children, boys and girls equally. Or they come up with all these reasons, historians. Whereas actually, you read the book of Acts, you think what caused the church to grow was that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. And actually, as you turn the pages in the book of Acts, page after page, it's just the Holy Spirit did this, the Holy Spirit did that. The book is known as the Acts of the Apostles, but it's, it's more accurately titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit because it's what he did when he was poured out on the church and how he moved in power, how the, the disciples moved in power full of the Holy Spirit. Now, when I first became a Christian, 
not coming from a, a Christian home. Uh, I remember going on the Alpha course and them talking about the person of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. And when I was baptized with the Holy Spirit, filled for the first time with power, it changed my life. I suddenly found myself with confidence and courage in a way that I'd never had before. And I remember for the first few months or years of my Christian life, I was so excited every Sunday because every Sunday, God, it seemed, turned my life upside down. Probably because there was a lot about my life that needed to be turned upside down. But every Sunday I would go full of expectancy, full of hunger for what God might do that week. I, would, I remember I would sit there on my hands at the start of church going, I'm just so excited because God is here and we don't know what he's going to do. What I then observed in my life of the years after the initial experience is that I just got used to church, get used to God's people, get used to, oh, we, we know that song, yeah, I sing that song. And now it's a, come on, wake up, oh my soul, wake up, get excited about God again. And actually, us as a movement of churches, um, known as New Frontiers, began in Seaford. Began in Seaford because there was a, an outbreak of the Holy Spirit uh, and, a, and a, a complete restoration and renewal of the church that resulted in much of our um, forefathers of the movement, much of them getting thrown out of churches. But they had to start new ones because people didn't like what was going on because the Holy Spirit was filling them with power. I remember listening to um, tapes from the conferences from New Frontiers early days. There was a conference called Stonely. Um, that took place up north somewhere in Stonely. I think that's the clue. Um, it took place in Stonely. And uh, I never went. Uh, it stopped when, after I became a Christian. But I used to listen to the tapes, and I could hear things going on in the background that made me think, that is unusual. So Terry, who led the conference in New Frontiers, would be speaking, and you'd hear people being fit, baptized and filled with the Spirit while he was speaking. And he was trying to preach from the Bible and have to say, can you guys go outside? And someone pray for them because I'm trying to... And, and sometimes they just thought, well, let's just not bother preaching because the Holy Spirit is here and wants to meet with people. And I had the amazing privilege of um, last week, I was away for two days with Terry, who started New Frontiers, just a few people in the room. And what struck me as I heard him talk and as people shared their stories was that Terry Virgo, who's now in his 70s, I think, He has just as much expectancy and just as much hunger for the presence and power of God now as he did in those early days with Stonely and with Seaford and with being thrown out of churches and having to start new churches that could be open to and contain what God was doing. Advent is over. Finished. But expectancy in the church really ought not to be. I want to talk about just briefly the difference between waiting for something and expecting something. So waiting is a very passive activity. Expecting is a very active activity. You wait for a bus, you expect guests. Golf is a sport for people who like to wait, isn't it? You stand around and you wait. You wait your turn, politely, talking about the weather, and then you have a go. It's a sport for waiting. It's different from, say, tennis. Andy Murray won the Davis Cup this week. That's a sport where you're constantly expecting. I remember when I got taught as a kid to play tennis, and they would always say, be on your toes, and you see them standing there like this, don't they, before the serve comes. They're expecting, because they know a ball at about 120 mile per hour is about to be belted at them, so they better be ready for it. They're expecting. Golfers, wait. Tennis players, expect. In the Christmas story, the shepherds were waiting. 
I mean, they weren't, we don't get the impression they were thinking about much other than their sheep. And um, they smelt, they were the, the underclass, they weren't respected, they just, they were waiting. They'd heard stories of what God did centuries ago. They heard stories about, I don't know, Solomon's temple. But now, well now they were just waiting. Just waiting. Just waiting for the Romans to get out of our country so we can get on being a, a nation again. Just waiting for the next uprising of revolutionary would-be messiahs to come and lead, the, lead us into war against the Romans. Just waiting. The Magi, they were expecting. They were studying the stars. They'd seen something that they thought, that's strange. And it led them to a particular place. It's the difference between waiting and expecting. When we come to church, when we're with believers, um, which best categorizes our mood? Are we waiters? Do, 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 we, do we come to church and we basically just wait for the people at the front to pull a rabbit out of their hat? <laughs> John, come on, play something magical. Woo-hoo, get some gold dust in the room. Should we get some smoke so we can sit there and create this show and this experience for us in the seats, the cheap seats, <laughs> to go, the plastic seats to wait? Sometimes they got cracks in them and you get pinched on your leg as you sit there. <laughs> because that's how we create the magic. But we sit there and we wait. Or do we come expectant? It's true, Advent is over. But expectancy really isn't and really shouldn't be. Uh, so in Acts 1.4, Jesus told his followers, wait, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And so they did. They waited for the Holy Spirit to come. And actually, look at, notice how they waited. In Acts 1 verse 14, it said this, All these with one accord were div- oh, there we go. It's behind me. I don't need to read this. Okay, fine. Um, and then they returned to Jerusalem. And when they had entered the upper room, that is, they went, oh no, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. All these were at one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together. That's the key phrase. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Jesus says, wait for the Holy Spirit. So they go, we're going to pray. We're going to devote ourselves to prayer. They're not sitting around going... So, how long do we wait for? It's been a few days now. I mean, Pentecost means 50, or pent means 50, I think. <laughs> so they tell me. Pentecost happened 50 days after the moment that Jesus is taken up to be with the Father. And so for 50 days, they're living with this promise of Jesus saying, wait, because the Holy Spirit's coming. Wait. 50 days. I mean, I'm as enthusiastic as the next person, but my enthusiasm doesn't last much longer than a few days. In fact, I'm, I'm more enthusiastic than most people, it seems. But my enthusiasm doesn't last more than a week or so before I just get, I'm bored. What can I do now? I've swept this upper room so many times. What do we do? What are we waiting for? And Jesus said, you, you will receive power when the Spirit comes to you. Do you feel powerful today? No. So I guess the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. Okay, let's wait. Let's wait. Except they waited with expectancy. They prayed, they prayed, they prayed. What they were waiting for was what Jesus described as the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. John baptized you with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, baptize is, is quite a technical religious word for us these days. We go to baptism services or christening services and we think, well, that's what baptism is. But in their day and age, it wasn't a technical phrase. In fact, the word baptism, or to baptize, first appears in literature around 200 BC, so 200 years before Jesus. Uh, A guy called Nisander, I think, uh, or Nicander, he was writing in 200 BC, and he was writing one of the earliest recipes we have on how to make pickle 
<laughs> how to make pickle, I think. Um, and what he said in this instructions, uh, I've got it written down here. He says, to make a pickle, to make a pickle vegetable, no, no, to make a pickle, comma, vegetable should first be dipped into boiling water and then baptized into vinegar solution. He uses the word baptized because for them it's just a normal word. Now, we have some of these things in our fridge and they just, I've never eaten anything from one of these jars, these kinds of jars, pickling jars. Just, it just looks horrible. Look at that. That's a cucumber. Would anybody like to eat that cucumber? No, but we, we keep these things in our fridges for weeks, months, years. In fact, I, I meet a lot of resistance in my household whenever I cho- try to throw these things away, these pickling jars. I've never eaten one, and I don't ever intend to eat one. But that's pickle, isn't it? We, we pickle a vegetable by putting it in this oily, slimy, greasy stuff as a way of preserving it and making it taste nice, so they say. That's pickling. These vegetables have been baptized in this pickle. You know, you've heard of being baptized in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now it's baptized into cucumber and onions and things. That's one of the examples from 200 BC about baptism, the word appearing. Another occasion that baptism is used is is quite often in the the Gospels where it talks about... um, Washing your hands and cleansing. So Jesus is told off by the Pharisees for not washing his hands or the disciples for not washing their hands before they ate, which wasn't a statement about his hygiene. It was a statement about them engaging in these religious ritual cleansing processes before they eat. Okay? But the word that they use there is, um, is the word baptize. When you wash, you baptize. Why have they not baptized their hands before eating their dinner? And so the image here is of something like this isn't washing, but this is what you do when you wash your car, isn't it? You put a sponge in some water... And now it's full of water. It has water in it, you would say. Yes, okay. that's baptism. I've baptized that sponge, not in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but in water. Another example of baptism in the ancient world was to do with the dyeing of cloths. I don't know whose this t-shirt is, um, but I have some kind of food coloring and water here. And they would talk about baptism in terms of dipping cloth into into material, yes. Oh, look, it's actually quite good, isn't it? I'm going to stain the floor. There we go. This cloth, oh, it's, it's actually blue. I hope that turns back afterwards. Okay, um, it is actually blue. That, t- that top has been baptized <laughs> again, not in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but in food dye. The point with all three of these examples is that you know when you've been baptized. This cucumber, bless its heart, has, knows that it has been baptized, okay? Because it is, it has not gone off for years. This is quite annoying. It's not gone off for years and it tastes different. It knows about it. This sponge knows that it's been baptized. So that if I were to, if I were to throw it at you, you would know about it. Because it has been baptized. And so the, sorry about that. That was childish. I just thought, I can't resist. It's, you know about it. Same with this cloth. You know about it. This t-shirt knows that it has been baptized. So when Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power, you, when, you, when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, they, they, want, they sat around going, what does that mean? But they knew it meant, I will notice it, and other people will notice it. I will notice it, other people will notice it. When you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you know about it, other people know about it. There's a story of um, a man named D.L. Moody, who was an evangelist in the 19th century, um, toured the world, preaching the gospel, saw hundreds of people become Christians. Before he, 
um, saw the kind of success in helping people become Christians, he um, hadn't been baptized in the Holy Spirit in the sense that he knew about it and other people knew about it. He hadn't received power from the Holy Spirit. To the point that he would preach regularly a message in his church. And afterwards, two old ladies, I don't know if they're old, let's put that in there for you know, story embellishment. Two women came up to him after he preached every time. And they said, we're praying for you, pastor. And he would say, thank you. And then they asked him, and then he would preach next Sunday. And they would say, we're praying for you, pastor. And next Sunday, we're praying for you, pastor. And one time he got annoyed and he said, why are you praying for me? Pray for the lost, the people who don't know Jesus. And they said, we're praying that you would receive power. And that annoyed him. <laughs> he thought, I thought I had power. And it, it, lent, it caused him to go into a period of days and weeks asking God to fill him with power. And one day he was walking along Wall Street and a power came on him that he had not experienced before. And he had to go and rent a, an apartment somewhere and just receive power from God to the point that he asked God to stop because he thought he might die for the joy that was overwhelming him. That was D.L. Moody's example. You, people knew after that he'd been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Another example is of a um, lady named Corey Temboom. A different example here, but she was uh, someone who who helped protect Jews during Nazi uh, during the Second World War in, in in Holland, and she herself was arrested and in prison for some time. And uh, she had a remarkable story and um, used to speak around the world talking about forgiveness. Uh, but one man went to hear her speak in a synagogue. And she was speaking to these Jews, but she was speaking to these Jewish people. Okay, they're not Christians, Jewish people, but she was speaking to them all about Jesus. And the guy that was watching her speak said to his son, he said, if she doesn't stop talking about Jesus, we're not going to get out of here alive, number one. And number two, she's filled with the Holy Spirit because she can't stop talking about Jesus. In other words, he looked at her and said, she's been baptized in the Spirit because she can't stop talking about Jesus. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. He loves to talk about Jesus and to point people to Jesus. I shared with you last week, uh, two weeks ago, stories from my life, Helen's life, Ross's life, about what it was like when we were baptized or filled in a noticeable way with the Holy Spirit. And uh, Chris during, uh, before we started, was talking about a time that a Pentecostal minister went into HTB in London. So he was a Pentecostal minister, okay, used to loud and you know, exuberant worship, going into HTB, very Anglican, on the, on the lively end of things, but still very Anglican. And said he, he sat there, and the guy at the front said in a very Anglican way, come Holy Spirit, which I, th- I think they must train you to do that in vicar school. Well, I don't know, because I can't do it. Come Holy Spirit, in that way that you know, our Anglican brothers and sisters do. And he said, he sat there and he said, I'm a Pentecostal. I know about the Holy Spirit. That's not how you ask for the Holy Spirit to come. You need loud and say, come Holy Spirit. And she came on a humble rubber You do all of that to get the Holy Spirit to come. But he said, as, rubber dinghy, that's in the Greek. As, as he said, come Holy Spirit. This guy said he, was, he went forward for prayer. And before long, he was just on the floor in fits of laughter, looking up at this font going, I'm not even sure if I believe in fonts, but I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit came on him in power, and it was noticeable. 
And actually, when the Holy Spirit baptizes you, I said you know about it, other people know about it. In the New Testament, there's lots of different examples of what it looks like when the Holy Spirit comes. And it's almost like a, an A to Z. So I've done this next slide, which is like an alphabet slide. Um, you receive these things. Well, these are examples of what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. Assurance, boldness, buildings start shaking. You cry out, Abba, Father. You have evangelistic zeal. You have fruitfulness in your life. Joy, the gift of languages, miracles accompany you. You persevere through trials and difficulty. You receive prophecy and power. There was a rushing wind and tongues of fire. Not seen that one yet. Um, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Spiritual giftedness accompanies baptism in the Spirit, as does submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, as does thanksgiving, tongues of fire, and unity in the church. When the baptism of the Spirit comes, you receive any number of those things. Now, I've, I've never met a Christian who's, received, who's experienced all of those things, But I've also never met a Christian who's experienced none of those things. Because when the Holy Spirit baptizes you, you receive power and you receive some of those things there. One friend of mine wrote this in a paper on the Holy Spirit, which narrows down the friend that I'm talking about. Who else do I know that writes papers? Um, He said this, If such tangible demonstrations of the Spirit's power and presence are not evident in a person's life, something is missing and needs to be pursued with urgency. If you look at that list and go, I can't identify with that, something is missing and you ought to urgently pursue it. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, you should eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. My son eagerly desires the chocolate of the advent calendar, although not anymore because we took them away on Saturday because they ate all of them. Not happy. But he eagerly desired it to the point that he said, I'm just going to eat it all. You've ruined it, son. Advent is, in fact, over for you. But for us, it looks like we're to eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. That I might prophesy, that I might pray for someone and them get well, that I might persevere through difficulty, that I might be filled and empowered with the Spirit to submit to someone in authority over me, even when I disagree, that I might be filled with the Holy Spirit to persevere through trials. That I might be filled with the Holy Spirit to remain united with my brothers and sisters in the church and not just quit because someone upset me and go find something else. No, we need the Holy Spirit. And we're to earnestly and eagerly desire the Holy Spirit in everything we do. Paul writing to the church in several examples, he makes it quite clear. When you come together as a group of people, the Holy Spirit gives gifts. Some of you have songs. Some of you have songs for one another. Some of you have songs for God. Some of you have new languages that God gives you. Some of you have prophetic words. But when you come together as a body of believers, there's to be an expectancy that God is going to speak. Again, we don't, I don't, we don't come here every Sunday to sit down and wait for someone to pull a, mag, a magic rabbit out of the hat and go, ah, oh, this is church. We don't hold up the bread and wine and go, look, the presence of God. No, the presence of God, when the curtain was torn in two, was gone global and at Pentecost the Spirit was poured out to the point now that you have the presence of God in you. Now it's good to receive laying on of hands and for people to anoint you and empower you with a gift from God but you have access to the presence of God. We don't need to go chase it here, there and everywhere but we do need to desire him and expect him and eagerly hunger after him. So if God's blessing you, I'm going to go stand close just so I can kind of catch some of what God's might be doing in your life. He might do it in my life as well. 
Luke 11, I just want to have a, a quick game of um, fill in the blanks before we finish. This is what Jesus says, talking about the father. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give? Now, if you've never read this Bible verse before, you'd expect those blanks to be good things. Because he's just, you know, he's kind of doing this, this mirroring thing, isn't he? How much more will the Heavenly Father give? If you ask good things, how much more will the Father give you good things? But that's not what it says, is it? This is what it says. Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who seek him. God is a Father that when you say, can I have something good? He says, have more of my Spirit. Okay. Because <laughs> that's what we need. He's the one that we need. Advent is over, but expectancy in the church really shouldn't be and isn't and doesn't need to be. I mentioned what it was like when I first became a believer. My lament in my life is that sometimes there isn't that same expectancy or hunger. My lament in the church is that, although it might be true of Terry who started the movement, is it true of us as a church that we hunger for the presence of God? When you're hungry for food and you go to a restaurant, no matter how good the company is, if you go home hungry, you didn't have a good time. (laughs) It's not why you went there. Now, I love this church. You are amazing people. In our life, we have been so blessed just by being near you and being friends with you. You are just remarkable in your kindness and generosity and love for us, for one another. I love what God's doing. But when we gather every Sunday, as much as I like John, I don't come to church to meet with John. I'll go to the pub if I want to meet with John. <laughs> we'll go for breakfast together when the, the mums can look after the kids and we'll just go for breakfast. Okay. But when we come to church, I, I want us to come hungry for God, expectant for God to meet with you, to baptize you in his spirit. So that you go away going, I know I'm different. I'm saturated. (laughs) I'm wet. Whatever that looks like for you. I'm dyed. I've I've been preserved. Something's changed about me because I've been baptized in the Spirit. My hunger's been satisfied for a moment. Now we're going to pray. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and baptize us. To fill us. If you've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit. If you've looked at that list and thought, I don't, I've never experienced any of that, or not for a while. No, let's start with never. <laughs> if you've never experienced any of that, I want us to pray for you. If you have, but you can't remember the last time, I want us to pray that we would get baptized again in the Holy Spirit. But before we get there, I want us to just stand and ask the Holy Spirit to fall in power on us. So why don't you stand to your feet? Jesus, thank you that you sent your spirit. Father, thank you that you sent your spirit. Ask Holy Spirit that you would baptize us, that you would fall on us in a minor key. Ask Holy Spirit that you would baptize us with power. Clothe us with power. Come, Holy Spirit.